On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we'll have our first guest ever. It is Preston Johnson, the sports cheetah. We'll ask him, are you tout or sharp? We'll also be recapping the Sloan Analytics Conference, talking a little bit about the extortion, I mean, the integrity fee that the NBA is trying to charge the sports betting market. And then we'll actually talk a little bit more uh, after Preston's appearance about sort of our opinions on sort of what he said and his role um, as a sports expert and kind of going forward. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app. It's the best app to track sports gambling lines, content, etc. And it's available for free on the iTunes store and the Google Play store. So download it today, tomorrow. There's no reason not to. So with that, let's start the process. to the second off-season episode of the Bet the Process podcast starring myself, Jeff Ma, and Rufus Peabody from Austin, Texas, of all places. That's me. Uh, yeah. What's going on? Anything Not much. Just, just got back from Safari. I, I'm a resident hippo expert now. I know everything about the hippo. It's my new favorite animal. Got it. It can swim so as fast as Michael Phelps and run as fast as Usain Bolt, and it just kills lions for fun when it, if they look at them the wrong way. <laughs> it, oh, That's and the best cool. fact about the hippo is that it's bulletproof. Literally, to poach it, you have like to poach it. You need a rocket launcher. That's not a joke. So it's kind of. Awesome. I, I highly recommend safaris. They're lots of fun. You get to see lots of cool animals, and I didn't die. So we we wanted to start. This podcast off. We're going to have our first guest ever, which is going to be Preston Johnson, uh, formerly known as the Sports Cheetah and maybe forever known as the Sports Cheetah. But before that, we want to talk a little bit about the Sloan Conference, which I participated in recently. Obviously, it's become known as Geekapalooza. It has become this most ridiculous thing. For me personally, I started going to the first one ever, and there's been 12. I've only missed one. I've been on panels at all 11 that I've been to. And it's incredible to have seen this thing grown. I was having breakfast with John Kozner, who used to run sort of digital and technology for ESPN. And he and I met at the first one ever, and it was in a classroom at MIT. The panel was probably attended by like literally 13 people. And it's just incredible to see how this thing has grown. Um, Rufus, we missed you there. What were your sort of like from afar? Were there any uh, things that you know you were wondering about that you wanted to ask about? Honestly, I didn't realize it was this weekend until until you told me. But and until so I went to Twitter, tree falls but Jeff, Jeff you are you have, you you are like you are on the gambling panel every single year, as you said. Like it's they need to rename it Jeff Jeff Ma and others discuss sports betting legalization because that's basically well, what Chad's it is. Chad's always year. on it. And you, and you always, it's true. It's Chad is always on it, but, but I feel like you always own the conversation in a good way. Like you're the one no, that has I mean, the, the strong opinions and you're not. Yeah. Well, so I think one of the, one of the challenges that Sloan has had as a conference is that 
because of the star power they're able to attract. So, I mean, like Steve Ballmer was there this time and Barack Obama. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, he was the president for uh, about eight years. Um, Sam Hinkie, wait, obviously, Daryl, Chris Bosch. Like, I could go on and on. They struggle Barrick, a little bit. Barack Obama? Barry. Barry Obama. Barry, Barry to okay, his friends. Barry. I, I heard I, I he, some time you, you, know, you couldn't say Barry much about what he said in the, during his appearance, or you're going to yeah. get like, you're you're going to get a Dikembe Mutombo finger wag in your face by the organizers. So some of the uh, some of the uh, comments about our podcast, one of the like negative comments is that we make a lot of dumb jokes, and if that makes me a bad person, I don't care because I'll always make a lot of bad jokes because that's just me. I, I'm a I'm a I, I'm not a dad like you are, but I'm a dad joke aficionado. How do you know when a dad joke is a dad joke? When I don't it know becomes how. a parent. When it becomes oh, a parent. Yes, yes. It's a good yes. one, right? Okay, anyway. That's a very good one. So, the, so, so, uh, so Jeff, what was let, let's, let's so you were there, I wasn't there. So, I want to know what what made this year's conference different than was it basically just same old thing, same old people except for Barry? Um, I think I think Barry's appearance was gave it a whole new level of legitimacy um but i mean i think it's indicative of like sometimes the the challenges with the conference which is that star power is is the biggest you know the biggest driver um and you know barry obviously was very interesting in some of the things he said but i wouldn't have called it like the most interesting sort of sports analytics content there is and how data-driven is barry really and you know whatnot i i have no idea (laughs) but my the the um I think from my standpoint, the, the thing that was different was being on a panel with Ted Olson, who was the former Solicitor General of the U.S. He argued, um, you know, Bush over Gore and the recount. He argued for uh, the, the overturning of Prop 8 in California, which was what ushered in same-sex marriage. Um, he's had this unbelievably storied career. I mean, like you probably top five lawyer of all time, if you were going to have your Mount Rushmore of lawyers, he would be on it. Um, and I got to spend a lot of time with him, and he was really interesting. I mean, he's the guy that's representing state of New Jersey um, against the U.S. to try to um, make you know New Jersey able to legalize gambling. And he was fascinating. And just even his point of view on this, um, on how it happened. And what was funny is like we're on this panel together. And I was trying to make this point about like how all of the leagues and whatnot are operating under this premise that like first principle thinking that sports gambling should be illegal and for them to legalize it, there should be some benefit to them and to the states or whatever. And if you go back and it's like you think about from first principle thinking and you say is why should sports gambling be legal in the the first place? And it should be legal. And that was kind of my point. And he made the same point later in the panel, but he just made it in such a much more of an articulate way than I could have ever done. And I'm like, man, that's that's why that's why he's like a you know famous, successful lawyer, because he knows how to argue things and articulate versus me who can't even say my podcast partner's last name correctly more than once oh, in a row. I mean, look, I'm the least eloquent person there is like you, you, you run circles around me verbally. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you're making me feel great here. No, but he was he was amazing, and, and the panel was interesting. We also had Layla Mintis, who is the um, deputy U president of the U.S. for Sport Radar. If 
you, those of you guys don't know what Sport Radar is, they are a behemoth globally in the world of, of data and sports data for sports gambling. Um, and they're sort of just starting to make inroads in the U.S., um, but they were the sponsors of the panel. And then there was another uh, legal sort of voice, this guy, Daniel Wallach, who took the point of view that the um, NBA has, in, you know, has this sort of intellectual property that they have the right to monetize via an integrity fee. And, you know, I just thought it was horseshit. I didn't think his argument was very good. Um, and my thoughts on it were that, you know, that, that they're so focused on protecting their rights and sort of like gouging people up front. Um, and, and what they're going to do is they're going to ruin any chance that like legalized sports gambling operators have of being competitive with black market sports betting operators. And it's just going to hurt the industry and how they should be thinking about this instead is um, thinking about if they let this or they, they sort of nurture this industry to flourish it's going to create so much more engagement on their product itself. It's going to create so many more marketing opportunities, sponsorship opportunities, everything um, down the road that the idea of trying to charge up front and, and get money that way is short-sighted. And, you know, for me, it's not an argument of whether they have the right to charge operators to do it. It's more just like whether it's the right thing strategically. And, and I, I think fundamentally it's just the wrong thing strategically for them to do especially this 1% integrity fee. I mean, can you imagine like sports books having to pay 1% of all their handle to someone else? And you know, that means that that's going to get passed on to the consumer, of course, and it's going to make the sports book less competitive in the global marketplace, which is going to keep, keep more action offshore and illegal and going to encourage. Um, and obviously I think the big argument against sports betting offshore is organized crime. So basically you could argue that the NBA getting 1% of volume is trying to keep organized crime in business <laughs> well i actually said that i called them unethical the nba for, for pro organized crime well no the the well that's a good tagline i mean the, but the thing is that i think that they are when when you say what you're saying about them passing it on to the consumer my my point even more is that you know if you think about what makes problem gamblers become problem gamblers it's losing so if you create even a higher uh you know ability or, or a higher way that they lose, like they're going to lose more money, you're actually creating more of a chance for problem gamblers and more of a chance for people to just lose money gambling. And um, I think that's the you know unethical nature of it. So I don't, I don't think there's like any argument for anyone that kind of knows this industry that 1% of betting volume is, is crazy. I mean, just crazy. So yeah, some I, other I things. That. And I, I think that it's, you know, to, to the lay person, it might sound reasonable, like, oh, they only want 1%, but that is a lot. That's a, well, it ends up being, if you believe there's like 5% it's not 1% of, of profit, right? Is it 1% no, 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 of, it's 1%, it's 1% of, of volume? Not, yeah. right, wait, if it was 1% of profit, that would be a completely different story. And I'd be, I would probably be okay with that. Like that 1% of profit sounds reasonable. 1% of volume sounds completely preposterous. Well, one percent of one percent volume becomes roughly twenty percent of profit if you believe in like about a five percent handle, which is like reasonable for a sports book. So it's, it's yeah, and twenty uh, percent of the profit is completely unreasonable in my opinion. And I know their argument is that without without the NBA, you can't bet on the NBA, and that makes sense. But I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know the basis of that, but. I, I, it well, doesn't I mean, seem you, like they have any right to stop gambling on something. I mean, it doesn't do do other 
does the English Premier League get a cut of, I don't know, Ladbrokes or anything like that? There's not a lot of precedent for these big integrity fees. They had to go to two states, I mean, two countries. One is Australia and one is some sort of obscure soccer league in France, or maybe it's not obscure, but some soccer league in France um, to, to find places where they had sort of like these equivalent integrity fees. Um, they clearly had done some research that brought them to this point. And, you know, I kind of think it might be, um, this might be somewhat anchoring, like they're not actually wanting 1%, but if they start with 1%, it makes people think that when they ask for say 0.1%, that it's it's not that much. Um, I think they're in, already in negotiation mode, but who, who knows? I mean, there are, I talked to someone who is pretty high up at the league for a while about this, and we had some pretty good arguments about it. And, you know, they have reasoning behind why they want to do what they're doing. It's just generally flawed reasoning because, again, like they have so much to benefit if they can create a legalized sports betting market. I mean, it's, it's, it would be great for them. Um, and it, it, it could increase engagement in their product. And all these leagues have great, great, great incentive yeah. to sort of make this work that thinking about like charging up front and making it much harder for people to, to enter into this business. And like you said, drive the organized crime syndicates out of this business. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just very short-sighted. I mean, so. think like leagues aren't asking for a cut of fantasy football revenue, are they? Or fan, like, I think that that's, well, the problem, the problem with that is parallel they can find, but fantasy, they, fantasy, rep, fantasy football and fantasy sports in general have driven demand for these, for the, you have driven demand in a big way. And I think, Sports betting is going to do the same thing, but on a, on a much to a much larger degree. Well, there's actually a lot of precedent for that in terms of th- there was, you know, legalized sort of fantasy sports um, was actually tried by up to I think it was argued from the Supreme Court whether the leagues had a right to take a cut, and fantasy sports won, and that's why fantasy sports is not able to be you know, like for forced licensing fees or forced, you know, for, for that kind of information, it's in the public domain. Once it's in the public domain, it's, it's anyone's right. Um, I think probably the same thing could be true, will, would be true if this got tried. Um, it, it's a, there's a lot of precedent there. So I think that the leagues are trying to get ahead of this by saying like, Hey, we're only going to support this if there is such thing as this integrity fee um, because they're not inventive enough to actually come up with other ways to make money off of this. Okay, just kidding. They are, but they. Um, I think this is an easier way for them to think through this um, right right off the bat. And and again, like when you talk to them, they have a lot of reasoning why they believe this to be true. And whether they like really believe this or whether this is their business point of view is another question. But when I when I think about if I were in their their place, like I would just be like, hey, let's let's figure out how to make this happen. And then let's figure out how to make money off people, uh, off these operators by say, hey, you can pay us to be a trusted sports book of the NBA. And that's and then with that, we'll give you some marketing and everything like that. Like actually give them a benefit versus just saying, like, you got to give us one percent off the top of, of every you know dollar wagered on your on your platform. So, OK, so I think we both agree. We, we, we both are on the same side as the, on, on this issue. And, and I'm going to I'm looking forward to actually listening to your panel when it becomes available in the public domain, which generally happens a month or two after the actual conference. I know you can stream it live if you're, you know, in front of your computer when it's happening, but I was not. Yeah, no, it's, Safari. it's, it's, it's a pretty good jumping off. The bu- yeah. You're falling in love with hippopotamuses. 
No, I, w- I was bungee jumping off of uh, off of the Victoria Falls Bridge. Scariest thing I've done in my life, seriously. So we, we also but, had some interesting kind of conversations um, at the conference. Uh, let's see. I mean, around... That's what the conference is, basically, right? Yeah, it's a lot. It's of, just I mean, there's just amazing people there. Like I had a dinner one night with uh, Nate Silver, Mike Zarin, who's the assistant GM of the Celtics, Henry Abbott, who you and a was, great guy. Yeah, uh, Henry Abbott, founder of True Hoop, um, Kevin Arnovitz, who's a writer for ESPN, um, some of the people from Sports Action, actually Brian Mead was there, and um, then this guy David Anderson, who was a wide receiver in the NFL and for is now Texas. a data scientist. Yeah, he's a data scientist now. Dude, um, David Anderson reached out to me via email like five years ago about sports betting related stuff. I, I honestly, right now I want to search my email and see if I can find the, the, the thing he, he was, no, he's a great like, guy. He was it, super it was interesting. Smart. So, but one of the things yeah, that he was like, like at the time he was going to start grad school at UCLA, I think, and was interested in like, you, the data, like the data. Not no, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm close enough. Right. Those I those mean, it's up. the same. Sense. It's a big deal. Yeah. Anyway. So I know. Uh, we had a dinner that night and I've tweeted out a picture of it after we'd been, um, you know, enjoying ourselves a little bit. And a lot of people kind of got on me to ask Nate about the election, kind of like making fun of him for his election predictions. And I don't think people realize that his models actually gave Trump more of a chance to win than anyone else's models or any like public pundit or anything like that. So oh, I know. And, and, and I saw some of I, I, I looked on Twitter this morning so I could be prepped for our podcast. And I looked through that exchange and I saw that and, and, and I responded to someone. I was like, you realize I made money off of Nate's projections for the election. Like it, Nate was, was higher on Trump than anybody else out there, higher than the market. And if you followed silver, you know, if you followed his, I mean, people are like, Oh, well he, he gave, you know, Hillary a 70% chance to win and she lost. So he was wrong. And that's unbelievably simplistic and just a wrong way of looking at it. That's where people don't understand probability and don't understand, um, what a market is. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to we'll try to get Nate. We might be able to get Nate on this podcast sometime as a guest. That would be pretty fun to talk through that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the like I I, get, I had a mea couple with Nate where I told him like, listen, I was making fun of you to people because I was saying like you were sort of like you know overfitting or whatever it was or whatever you want to call it like by giving Trump like he made those caveats on Trump basically saying like that he'd been wrong on Trump all the time. And so he was worried that maybe his models were even underestimating the chance that Trump had to win. Um, and I was always saying like, well, well, you know, Nate's kind of lost his way. He's like, so, you know, hell bent on not, you know, not wanting to be wrong about Trump that he's sort of backpedaling on Trump with all of these statements. And so I, um, you know, generally, you know, it was it was an interesting moment for he and I to sort of like discuss that because I was like, you were you were right about that. And I I don't think people realize how right he was compared to mainstream thinking. So anywho. Yeah. Anyway, I did. I actually did find the uh, the LinkedIn messages that David Anderson sent me. That's kind of blast from the past. November 2013. There you go. I've never met the guy, though. He's, but, he's really so I have guy. a question for you. Sure. So back. So, do you, you know, most of the people that are listening to, to this podcast are probably, I mean, probably we're not at Sloan. And so, but I think it has a reputation as being sort of a who's who in sports analytics, right? 
And mm-hmm. it's become kind of, there's definitely a good presence for sports betting related people as well. So I guess my question to you is, do you think it's worth it for like an aspiring sports better or sports analyst to attend the conference? Um, given that you can view everything online, um, given the, so, you know, it's, it's obviously pretty expensive. What tickets are like close to a thousand bucks, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I, I mean, it just depends, right? I mean, I think it depends what you're trying to do with your career, right? Are you trying to break in to the sports media world and are you trying to get some intros and things like that? Um, I think you have to do some stuff beforehand. You have to reach out to people. You have to like be aggressive on LinkedIn and try to make some, some contacts. But I mean, I think any, I mean, the fundamental question you're asking is a, is a fundamental question about conferences in general in this day and age. It's like, why bother going when most of the content's going to be free online anyways? And for me, Sloan has never been about the content per se. It's been more about the networking and the opportunity. Um, so I don't know. I mean, let's I mean, be honest, I, the content sucks. Well, you don't gain any insight towards sports betting unless unless you read the papers, but you can read the papers on for free online anyway. I don't want to say the content say it sucks. sucks. Sorry, I mean, sorry. It, it just well, doesn't provide value from a betting perspective. Well, I mean, what what would, you know, like how could you do that? Like, it, I, okay, fine. Um, but again, it's this sort of idea of, of being there and meeting people, and I think that's really the, the value of it. Um, so – yeah, that's 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 kind of where I am on that. Like Jeff, how many panels did you go to? I was like berries. three or four. Um, I was on. I was like working a lot on some stuff. Like I had to judge the startup competition. Like and uh, I had to do like I did a podcast with your former, um, with your former okay. well, with your current yeah with your current colleague I guess like current yeah. Shouldn't say former colleague. K told me about it. He said he was really, really grateful to have you on. He also said he had Chad on. He'd never met Chad before. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was there when they met each other. It was very exciting. He said Chad wasn't exactly what he expected, or or something like that. He thought Chad would be taller. So maybe probably. Maybe thought Chad would be taller. Just kidding, Chad. Just kidding. Chad and I hung out a bunch, so he doesn't hate me anymore. Hopefully, we'll see. Well, that's good. That's good. Making uh, friends. Did you want to talk quickly about this uh, this thing that happened with the sports action Vegas refund guy? I, don't know I, I feel like you know more about it than I do. Yeah. But uh, before we get to that, though, I want to hear, I think, like, can we stay with Sloan for one more second? What, sure. are, what is the best story you have from your years of Sloan? The, yeah. Best story. Do you have any funny stories? Best stories. Uh, I mean, I... I don't know. And of I mean, course, I'm asking you that because I have a story myself. But well, why don't you tell me your best story then? It, it was actually at a dinner that I I got to because you invited me. Do you remember this? This was a few years ago. It was the year I was on the panel, and I think I don't know. I was at dinner with, and it was some nice restaurant in Boston. Batty I'm dinner? talking. It was the Shane Battier dinner. dinner yeah. yeah. Shane Battier, who by the way, like was like, oh, let me know if you you know gave me my number or give gave me his number and was like, if you're ever in Miami and want to play golf, like, you know, let's, let's definitely do it. And I texted him and I never got a response. So I'm like, damn it, Shane. But he's probably a very busy guy. He's got kids. Shane was such a nice guy. Seriously. He was, um, and my brother was there and he was like super, like, you know, he talked to us for, for way longer than he, um, than he had any right to, but 
But I, I remember you talking like to this guy right at the bar. You don't, Shane, you don't think Shane Badahead has the right to talk to you? Are you saying you're better than Shane Badahead? Sorry, Badde? I meant the other way. I, I, meant, I, meant, I meant I took up enough of his time. What a jerk. What a you jerk. know what I meant. Anyway, so I, I, so I go up to the bar, and there's this guy, and he was like, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, I bet on sports, blah, blah, blah. Like, what do you do? He's like, I play hockey. Like, I'm like, oh, cool. Like, you know, he, like, and he seemed, you know, like in the U.S., like, you know, in, in Russia, like where? He's like, yeah, in the U.S., and then we you go on and have a conversation about like just other random stuff, I think. And afterwards, my brother's like, you realize that's the best goalie in the NHL. That's a guy named Tuka Rosk. And I was like, nice. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of those, like I, you know, who Nick, you might not know who Nick Wright is, but Nick Wright's a host of a show on FS1. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't really recognize or know who he was. He always look, kind of looks like Shaka smart to me. So um, anyways, okay. I, I talked to him. He's super nice, um, really nice guy. I don't know if he had any idea, like my background or anything like that. But he was really nice to me. Um, so I mean, that that happens. And there was like a, someone tweeted about like that at Sloan. Everyone walks around staring at people's name tags to see if you're someone they should talk to. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep, that's but, true. Yeah. So back to what we're saying in terms of uh, um, the um, thing that happened with Vegas refund. There was this this guy. I don't know if he's he's just one of the people that provides picks on sports action put up a pick right before like the Nevada game where he took Nevada at minus 7000 um they had said everyone was complaining cuz they thought like he was he was trying to like get out of a big hole by like risking 70 units on it but he has he was actually only risking one unit on it well, and no, he was risking 70 units to win one unit. You mean? Yeah, he was risking he was 70 re- units to win one unit. Sorry. And, and, um, it was, you know, like Brian who runs sports action, uh, sport, the sports action app asked me, I like, I alerted it to him because people were like making fun of it on Twitter and, and tagging us because the, you know, sports action sponsors this podcast. They don't give us any money. Just so everyone understands they they just help no, pay for the, zero minimal production costs for this. So we talk about it. So it's not like we're doing this like as sellouts or anything like that. But um, anyways, we're doing it to hopefully support them um, and help them grow the app that they built. We, we were never in this to help them with the content that they're creating. That's never something we've been aligned with necessarily. I mean, I think we've made it clear that we make fun of it from time to time. Uh, but in this case, this guy did this. And, you know, regardless of whether this was malicious, which I don't think it was, it just shows like a very, very naive approach to sports betting. Um, if you're risking 70 units to win one unit, um, what what is your bankroll that you have to be able to risk 70 units on one bet? Or what do you think your advantage needs to be from a from a you know Kelly criterion standpoint to risk that much on one bet? It's just sort of like shows a very either naive or careless. Uh, way of approaching sports betting and if you're doing this in a way that like people are being notified of your picks and everything like that there is some level of like sophistication that you should at least pretend to have and in this case i i think he kind of missed the boat on all of it so i do think there were like a lot of issues with him doing this and he did it right before post time which everyone didn't like either um and so and whether he actually was able to find a place to make this bet like that's another question so i i, I don't know it, it just seems like a very odd thing to do. I don't think it was malicious. Um, Brian basically took it off. So it wouldn't be on his record anymore. I, he wouldn't get credit for it. Um, and he wasn't sure exactly what to do beyond that. 
Um, and I was like, well, maybe you should just like not work with this guy anymore. Cause it seems like a, a weird thing to do. And it doesn't give a lot of credibility to your quote unquote experts. So that, that was kind of my take on it. Okay. My take is that it says it's a 70 unit play, but it also, I mean, the way, the way the app displays units, it says, if you bet something at minus minus one ten, a standard bet would be 1.1 units because you're risking 1.1 to win one. But I would still call that, I mean, reg- you would normally say that's a one unit bet. So normally I would say this guy made a one unit bet at minus 7,000. Now that's risking 70 to win one, but that still would be considered a quote one unit bet. And I think that's why people on Twitter thought that this guy was risking um, you know, 4,900 units to win 70 units. That's That was where the outrage came from, in my opinion. Um, I don't think, I think risking 70 units to win one, like, you know, the odds that it's going to win, that bet is going to win are very high. So, you know, Kelly would say you're willing to stake a good percentage, a much higher percentage of your bankroll on something like that. So I don't necessarily have a problem with, you know, a minus 7,000 bet. Um, I would have had a but problem doesn't, if it was... No, Kelly, Kelly's your edge though, right? Kelly's your edge. It's not your actual... No, Kelly's based... Kelly's based oh, yeah, on your right, edge right, and right, based right. on the likelihood right, of something right, winning. So, right. because if, if you were betting something at 70 to one odds and you had a huge ass edge, you still would, you wouldn't bet 70 units on it. You know, that would be, right. that would be just absolutely preposterous. Yeah. So I, I do think, I, I think one issue though, I mean, a lot of people are saying like, I, I saw your Brian's interaction with somebody and where Brian was being very civil and, and used the word bruh excellent, excellently, I must say. <laughs> But Brian, um, Brian basically said these people that are posting pics are doing it for free and not getting paid anything. There is a donate button though, and it does help these guys get press and potential credibility, so that if they are successful, if they're the if they're the um, you know coin flippers that end up getting more heads than tails, they end up having a platform to actually sell pics. So I think I don't think you can say that it, it, there's no that it's completely ethical necessarily. Or, or that, that that there isn't any potential um, negative consequences as a result of these people posting free picks. It's much better than them selling picks, but at the same time, this guy Vegas Refund has twenty five thousand followers on Twitter, despite the fact that he's negative fifty five units or something on on the sports action app. So, I mean, it's giving it's giving people a platform, but it still is better than. Um, but I'm glad that it is monitored and tracked, and so that this guy can't say he's up fifty units when he's down fifty units. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're going to move on to our guest, uh, Preston Johnson, and we'll go into that. Uh, we are excited to bring in uh, the sports cheetah, otherwise known as Preston Walters. Is that correct? Your last name? I, it's oh, funny. Wow. Like you and I talk every day, and I don't even know what your last name is. Uh, Walters. If people don't know, I think that's from the movie Blank Check. So that's a good reference. Uh, well done, Jeff. But uh, Johnson's my last name. So <laughs> Preston Johnson, no relation to Wesley Johnson. Wesley Johnson. Did you see what happened to him uh, last night? Harden just he, he, he killed him. He just, I don't watch the NBA, and I even saw that highlight on yeah. Twitter. I was too busy checking scores and hoping that more scoring would happen than happen. Maybe like 30-some-odd points worse more than it happened that was kind of an odd game huh it was i think it was like 34 to 12 at the end of the first quarter or something and so it was it was definitely strange from that point on yeah okay so we want to bring people in who we believe have um solid processes who are you know people from the sports betting world people from the analytics world people from the sports world generally and i think you know at least my background with 
uh, Preston is sort of an interesting one in that, you know, I think that I was pretty dismissive of his work um, initially because of the fact that, you know, he was on a, a tout website and was sort of working as a tout and then sort of started to listen to some of the things he said. And, and from a standpoint of understanding or, or listening to his process, um, I, I was really impressed. And, and this was in sort of mainstream interviews or interviews and, in, you know, like with Gil or someone like that. And so I, I, I became a little bit less dismissive at that time. And then it seemed like the results that he was yielding and some of the, the things that I'd heard and picks that I'd heard were good. And obviously, you have to be careful whenever that happens because there are short ter- short term sort of fluctuations. And then really kind of for me um, came to a head when we started doing this podcast and you started sort of weighing in on some of the tout fraud, tout sharp kind of things. Um, and, you know, I, I, obviously we met in Vegas and, and got along and, and have uh, spent the last month exchanging picks and things like that and, and information. And I think at least from my standpoint, I'm pretty impressed with sort of your approach and, and what you're doing. Um, so I'm going to pose the first question to you, and then we can sort of open this up to a more broader discussion. I don't think this necessarily has to be a straight up interview. I'm going to pose the question to you, sports cheetah, tout or sharp? Tout or sharp. Uh, hopefully, so I'm not, I guess, officially a tout anymore. So I would say hopefully sharp now. Um, hopefully I was both for a little while. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I know you were kind of curious in general, like why I, you know, did I even tout in the first place? And I would just say that. So I just turned thirty. That's a lie. I'm about to turn thirty-one, so I'm I'm thirty, but I'm still pretty young. And when I started selling plays to some degree, was I think it was like six years ago, and I was just on Twitter and I had been posting uh, my picks for free for a while, and I had some guy come to me and say like, "Hey, we could." put these on a website, you know, make people subscribe and make a lot of money. And I was like, oh, sure, that sounds great. And at that time in Twitter, six, seven years ago, uh, no one was really doing that. And now that's like what everyone's trying to do. Not everyone, but it's just kind of turned into a mess where every Twitter account that has picks is ultimately trying to get people's money. So I was actually one of the first people way back when to like start a site via Twitter audience. So we had a lot of people right away signing up and I had some success when I was posting them for free just on Twitter. And and so that's kind of where it started. And we were only charging, I think it was $99 a year uh, just for all of my information and picks, which uh, you know, it's pretty cheap, I guess, and you know, compared to some other actual tout sites that uh, do that primarily. And so I did pretty well. I ended up deciding just to do it on my own, then had the wager talk guys three years ago approach me and offer me you know, a little more exposure. And I guess they have like the historical background of doing tout stuff for a long time. Uh, a lot of those guys do. And so I thought, oh, great, I'll do that. Uh, they made me a pretty good offer that I really couldn't say no to at the time. And so I was younger and I should say, I should have prefaced with all this. I was actually still finishing up my master's degree at that time. Uh, and I was in school and, you know, my wife worked and stuff. And um, I, I had some money from poker, which is actually my original background to just gambling at all. Uh, generally, but poker went uh, you know, Black Friday went illegal online. And so I kind of turned my bankroll to sports betting. I'd been doing that. And ultimately, it just made sense if I can make more or less a salary doing this instead of what my plan had been, which was uh, finishing a PhD in sports psychology and working with athletes and coaches and or maybe even being a professor. I was like, well, if I don't have to do three more years of school, and I could just do this. You know, that's, that's not a bad option. So uh, that's kind of the direction I went. But I would say now, uh, no longer tout and uh, I guess sharp. So Preston, what was your experience working for Wager Talk and Marco like? 
because I know you, I, I read, um, I read your post on Wager Talk, basically your farewell to uh, that site. And you said you still have a vested interest in the company and you're going to be doing videos. So I guess I'm wondering what sort of interest and in, in how do you sort of justify that um, given at least to what to me seems like a lack of transparency in the records of handicappers there, um, yourself excluded. Sure. So uh, the first part, my experience with them was really good. Uh, I mean, people give other humans that sell picks uh, the automatic, I guess, uh, representation that they're just like scammy, horrible people. They've all been really, really nice and genuine to me, to my family. When I've met, you know, they've met my wife or kids, and uh, I, have, I have nothing I could say, you know, poorly about the the humans that they are, Marco, and and some of the other people from the site that I've worked with. Um, I said in the post, I still have a vested interest, and that's uh, that's like more literal. So I'm a technically, you know, a partner. I had some benchmarks if I hit via sales or just time frame benchmarks that if I if I did for them, then I would actually you know own a percentage of the company. So that's why I, I was uh, I guess clarifying that in the post that I wasn't just bailing on them. That I do have a partnership there, and that. Uh, you know, occasionally if they want me to come in for videos, I'd be happy to help them, you know, break down a game in the studio and, and whatnot, but it wasn't going to be anything um, full-time like I had been doing previously. Uh, and so the question of how I justify doing that, I guess, because, you know, I am a partner of the site, uh, I need to try to justify uh, what I can to make it feel like it's okay. Uh, but I get where you're coming from with the fact that a lot of the guys aren't as transparent. And that's actually, I mean, I can say it's one thing that I, I tried to do after my first year with them was say like, hey, why don't we have an option where every you know handicapper on the site that wants to can at least offer an exclusive or an, a full account of every pick that they've made, and you know at least people that you know the audience viewers whatever can go and check and see what people's records are. And um, you know they made a good argument to me as like, hey, if you do that, there are going to be people on the site that wouldn't sell as well. And then also if there's people that are allowing that and others that aren't, then it makes certain people look bad. And if you're doing it and others aren't, then, you know, it would, it would just be kind of unjust for a lot of the handicappers on the side. And I said, okay, that's fine. And so um, that's ultimately why is, you know, the angle for tout sites. And it's no secret. You're trying to sell people on uh, your picks. If you're on a hot run, that's why they only list, you know, the last 20 so they can piggyback off someone that's, you know, 15 and five, their last 20 or, uh, whatever the the record or, or hot streak might be, and and so if they offered you know an exclusive look into every single pick, there would be some people that wouldn't sell as well. Um, and I don't think yeah, that's not like a secret. Uh, I think they would admit that too. So uh, you know they're they're trying to be transparent, and in some ways for people that want to track them, they can do it every day. Look at their last twenty. You know they can go through and and track it, but they don't have every single pickup. Which you know that's something they made as kind of a business decision, and I didn't agree with either. It sounds like what you're saying is they're not being transparent at all, and they have no desire for transparency because it'll show that their product is not worth purchasing for the most part. Would you? I mean, just translating what you're saying. Yeah, I, yeah, and I guess I, I'll reiterate the part that the, the transparency is there because the picks are there. If the other people want to do the work to actually track every pick, which anyone that you know is buying a pick, I guess, should be at least following who it is they're purchasing the pick from for some time to make some sort of logical and reasonable decision to purchase that pick. But uh, yeah, to, to reiterate then what you were saying uh, and clarifying there, yes, there are some people that wouldn't sell as well 
if people got a hold of their lifetime records or if they were actually tracking every single pick. And so I personally, to be completely honest, I couldn't tell you who's who of what. Like we hardly ever talk. Uh, I don't know anyone's plays ever from that site. I don't spend extra time going to their profile pages and looking. So people have asked me like, oh, does so-and-so win? I honestly can say, and maybe that's why I haven't gone. So I'm not caught in a weird spot and, and checked, but I don't know if so-and-so has won over the last year or lost over the last year or three years. Um, I haven't you know, gone and checked those records. And so there's people out there that probably have. And if you find those um, people that have been tracking, then you can use that information to make your decision after that. Right. Do you worry though? I mean, that, that, because you are transparent about your picks. I see your records there versus other people who, as you said, they are intentionally making it difficult to find their long term records because they don't want people to know that. Do you worry that hitching your wagon or, I guess, to that particular brand, Wager Talk, given, um, you know, given those, um, those issues sure. uh, will hurt you long-term. I mean, I know it's helped you get exposure, but at the same time, there's the downside um, in the fact that, that what you do, what, at least from my perspective, what you do seems much more transparent and you're willing to, um, I mean, you're honest and forthright. Whereas, yeah. Sure. I think that might be a decision. I feel like I do need to make down the road, uh, you know, a month, I guess it's been more like two months ago, I was still selling plays. Uh, so now, I mean, two months later, I'm not, and it's something that, you know, if I feel like I ultimately think it is unethical or something that there's, you know, is wrong there, then I may work out something where, you know, I, I either give up my equity to some degree or work out a buyout. You know, so that'd have to just be some sort of business compromise there. Um, right now, I'm fine, you know, where I'm at of having just left, not going to be selling picks there anymore. But if they want help, my, my favorite thing, what I've been doing now for the last couple of months is, you know, doing these things like podcasts, but radio for VEASAN or writing articles for uh, just doing content and being able to discuss sports and the analysis and the process. And so if I'm able to help them occasionally doing a video with that, right now I feel like I'm okay. And that's uh, for me still an ethical thing to do. Um, granted, you know, everyone has their their own opinions and I guess Jen does. But for me right now, I'm, I'm, I'm fine kind of being in this middle ground, uh, but it could be something I, I end up approaching in the next year or two and, and deciding I just don't want to be a part of down the road. So Preston, now you've decided to sort of move on from the tout world and you're kind of going on it as a real gambler. And for me, that's a lot of like what attracted me to, you know, to continue talking to you and like recommend you for some um, opportunities because I've always, my biggest issue is like, I only want to talk to like sports bettors that I know are really putting real money at stake. Um, you can tell when you talk to them, the way they think, the emotions that they have, the experience that they've had. Um, what are you, what are you looking for in terms of like now for the next phase of your career as you move past the tout world and, and now are, you know, handicapping for a living, have built some bankroll. Um, and sort of are, are going to the next phase of your career? What, what are the things that, you know, that, that are sort of exciting to you or that you're, you know, you're looking forward to? Yes, I know you were actually, you were switching your connection over, and I had mentioned a little bit with Rufus where um, I really do enjoy, and this comes from like me in high school where I thought I was going to be a sports center anchor and wanted to do journalism, and then I got selfish and realized there's really no money in that, and so I decided not to do that and go that route in my education, but I really do enjoy uh, writing articles, writing content, explaining things, and doing analysis for, for sports. 
Uh, and then when you can actually add the incentive of, of gambling and sports, it's a really good combo. I'm a big sports fan. So uh, doing that, doing radio, doing podcasts like this, talking through the processes uh, actually really is one of the things that excites me about not having to you know, be a tout or Celtics anymore. That's more the financial side of it. It doesn't mean I don't like you know communicating and interacting with people via social media or other platforms to discuss my, my decision making. And so um, ultimately, I didn't need to tie anymore. One, my contract was up with Wager Talks, a three-year uh, deal. So that that was part of it. Uh, I, the last two years, I've had some backing from some groups that helps a lot financially where I'm able to get a lot more down and get a nice percentage of, you know, an incentive of those bets coming my way, assuming we win. Uh, and so that makes it a lot easier when, uh, you know, you have a family you're trying to provide for and this and that, when you're able to just get more, more money down on your actual bets and, you know, feel a little more comfortable about that. And I don't need to worry about, you know, sales profits or revenue coming in. So for me, that's why, you know, I decided I didn't need to, to bother touting, but I'm not going to completely disappear either, you know, talking through uh, games in, 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 I guess my ideas and, and processes with people. So tell us a little bit about the process that you actually go through. I know that you're not a pure analytical better. Um, you do use some qualitative approaches also. Um, what is, what's your typical process for making a bet? Yes. Yeah, so I, th- I think the, the quantitative stuff is probably still first and foremost, you know, the most important for a lot of reasons. One, because it's generally the most accurate, uh, than, you know, a situational spot that a lot of people will try to use or some trend that's meaningless that people try to use to tout a pick or sell a pick or sell someone on the idea that it's a profitable bet. Uh, so you need to have some sort of gauge, whether it be at least some sort of power rating base or an actual model that's um, taking the data from that season from a team, the data from the market closes, which is some of the best information we can use as far as how the market's valuing certain teams and, you know, when they have certain matchups. And, you know, using all of those variables to make a decision. And so for me, it's it's still a lot of numbers. Um, but I think there are other uh, occasions that uh, it's worth maybe holding off on playing a game. Actually, a, a great example would be uh, last night. I might as well go into it. So uh, Jeff knows because I think he bet it as well. But I, I bet uh, New Mexico, Colorado State over 160 and a half. And... Uh, I've bet New Mexico overs now. Jeff actually had bet a second half over a couple games ago for New Mexico um, that I was also on. It may have been against Air Force, but uh, there was over 100 points in the first half. So a lot of people, when you're betting second halves, they automatically assume that, oh, it's a really bad adjusted number to bet over 80-something in the second half after 100 in the first half. Why didn't you just bet it before the game? But there's actual you know, tangible information you're gathering in that first half that can be relevant in the second half so a lot of people i think miss out on those opportunities anyway so we had bet that second half over and, and i was watching new mexico and it was their first game they've actually been healthy as a team they've fought a lot of injuries but i saw that they had started pressing full court which they weren't doing earlier in the season 100 percent of the time and when you're pressing full court the the great part about it is they're forcing some turnovers which leads to easy buckets for them, but they're also giving up a lot of layups the other way. They're fouling a lot to prevent layups and dunks or wide open threes when the opposition kicks it out once they get inside. And so the pace was up back and forth and the offensive efficiency for New Mexico skyrocketed the last couple of weeks, but their defensive efficiency and foul rate plummeted like really badly. So we are riding their over. So this is a good example with the model stuff last night. 
it's, I think it would have been the third or fourth New Mexico over in a row, is 160 and a half. The model, the actual number of taking all of their data from the entire season. And by the way, I should mention Colorado State's new coach decided a few weeks ago to push the pace. So they've actually kind of been doing a similar thing themselves anyway. The model number output was 156. I'm generally never betting over 160 and a half if my model output's 156, but I just disregarded it and went with the fact that if you you know, automate or are able to get a number for just, you know, their data of the last two weeks, the total should have been more like 169. So I thought that was a pretty big edge. It was actually a bigger bet for me than my standard bet would be. And it, I think, I think actually it's nice. You don't have to even watch the, the end of the game. I don't know what the final score was, but almost near 200 points. So that's an example where I guess, you know, numbers, you need to have that base knowledge, but there's other things happening that you need to be tracking that can give you an edge in other ways. I think they actually that's a really good example. That's a really good example of like a, a regime shift that you can... Oh, fine. Go. Make your funny joke. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think they scored more points than Houston and the Clippers did. So, anyways, it wasn't that funny now that you guys all killed it. So, sorry. Go ahead, Rufus. No, I was going to say, that's a really great example of a regime shift where it's something that you wouldn't pick up on unless you're actually following the nitty-gritty of this. But I guess my question is this also. Would that... So, you're, that's information in the first half that is predictive of the second half the the fact that this team was playing much more um, up-tempo and, and pressing on defense. But is that something your model picked up, or were you also just or, – or was that something that you you just noticed yourself? For that particular second-half bet, I think was four yeah, games Yeah, for that particular second-half game. That was something I just picked up. So you, like, look at the box score, and I had been watching the game anyways. Uh, it For one, they were just playing that way when I had watched other New Mexico games they weren't. And when there's that many points, you generally – I mean, just something basic – you know, someone could just look like, oh, well, did a team shoot 70% or something? Uh, that wasn't the case. Neither team really shot great. So then you see how many attempts they had taken. You can actually see that what the tempo was or how many possessions there were, how many foul calls. And you can, you know, you don't even need a model necessarily to kind of evaluate that. Uh, it's nice when you have one, you know, you can use like a tempo calculator at halftime to see based on the statistics in the first half, the expected pace for the second half and, and bet totals that way. Um, but that was one where I, I wouldn't have even needed that. I was just pretty evident after seeing that first half and the scheme change for New Mexico and all this, also the fact that they were finally healthy for the first time with their assumed starting five entering the season. Um, it just, it felt like it was a good bet either way. So, so are you saying that, that, yeah. Sorry, Jeff, to, to follow up really quickly. Um, you're saying that you find that pace in the first half is much more predictive of second half um, pace than shooting percentage in the first half is of second half shooting. Oh, that's a good way to put it. So I would say pace is probably more predictive since there's such a high variance in shooting anyway, which is why even if you are able to take advantage of uh, a change in a team's pace in the first half, uh, that's drastic. It's not necessarily going to mean it's a winner since a team could shoot, say you're betting an over, you know, they could shoot 30%, or if you're betting an under, they could shoot 60%. And so um, I would say that I would say it probably is, but at the same time, it, there's things that you have to worry about because it, the matchup's a big deal. And, you know, a lot of that's accounted for in the number anyway. So you at least need to have some sort of base that you're, you're looking at when you, you, know, you see 100 points in the first half of a New Mexico game. Uh, and you're like, oh, it's only 88 in the second half. Like you shouldn't just be blindly betting 88 in the second half because the first half was 100 and the pace was high. You need to know that 88's probably a fair number, even if the pace was similar to where it had been. So you need to at least have that base of some sort of predictive, you know, modeling 
telling you what the number should be regardless and then making your adjustment from there. So um, yeah, I wouldn't be recommending at all that people see pace in the first half and automatically bet accordingly in the second half because it ultimately comes down to what number you're actually betting. And I would guess also it depends on the situation, right, too. Like if, if one team is up by a lot, you know, they, they played fast and took a big lead, they're probably going to slow it down. That's actually it was one. Uh, I mean, last night New Mexico was up 26 at halftime, and there was 90 in the first half, so we needed 71 points. And I had the thought, well, I hope they don't, you know, pull the press off or, or change their their stylistic approach from the last couple of weeks. And fortunately, they didn't, and there was even more points in the second half. But that was one where, yeah, I wouldn't have been betting second half over because there is a 26 point blowout. You're probably going to see less fouling at the end of a game. And a team should be slowing it down more often than not when they are blowing another team out. So how long do you think that it's going to take, or do you think the market has already caught up with this? I mean, obviously, we're talking about this now, um, and there's like seven people that listen to this podcast, so maybe they're all going to bet and you might go over. Um, but do you, you know, are you going to watch this, as, or are you going to bet this blindly for a while? It will depend on the matchup. I When I saw 156 output and it was 160 and a half, I had, I had, made the initial decision probably not to bet it. And then I looked into what Colorado State had been doing and their change of play, and it was very similar to New Mexico's. So I, I decided to bet it and because the matchup and, the, and the, you know, when I adjusted some numbers, it, it came out to be a lot higher. So um, I would say don't just blindly do it. It's going to be dependent on matchup. I also think um, what was interesting about the movement yesterday is it got to 162.5, and, and I know there's probably groups out there that are – betting blindly just with a model and they saw 162 and a half maybe even some 163s and it shot that it got pounded under to 160 and I, I mean i don't blame them someone sitting there with a similar 156 157 projection is going to be betting under 162 and a half every time uh, unless they're actually maybe putting more time into the uh, qualitative side of analyzing a team and the scheming and sure enough it actually got bet back up to 163 before close so s- other groups out there said hey that was f- great thank you and actually bet it up anyways but there's going to be kind of that market back and forth with new mexico totals i think just because there's modeling groups out there that are betting strictly numbers only and don't even realize what's happening and maybe they do now after what happened yesterday they're going to see hey we bet worse than close, also went over by 40 points, and it closed seven points worse than our number. What happened? And so maybe they'll do some investigating. I mean, if that's the case, then maybe we won't get as much value going forward as it is. Um, but it's just something you have to kind of watch uh, game to game. It sounds incredibly uh, labor-intensive. <laughs> yes, that would be the trade-off for if you just have a model and you're just going with the numbers and not really worrying. And what's hard in college basketball, there's so many guys that mean so much to their teams that get – injured or questionable and you have to be watching you know whether you're going to make a bet anyways based on that and generally you all know, stay away from games where there's key players that are even questionable the day of because it's it's such a big uh, swing as far as values concerned to sides obviously but even total so it is it is labor intensive there's a lot of work that goes into that on top of you know making sure your 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 modeling and numbers are correct too so how much of your time would you say is spent on qualitative research versus the quantitative modeling and how much of that um, can be automated or have you automated? Yeah, it, it changes. So like beginning of the year, you're doing a lot of numbers and you're still researching information on teams, new players, transfers, that type of thing. But it, you're going to be going mostly on your numbers and you're putting a lot of your time into making those numbers. And I would say 
later in the year, your numbers and the data that's coming out is, is pretty refined and pretty accurate, and you don't have to do much adjusting there. And plus, you can just kind of automate, you know, what the closes are and the actual statistics from the games, and those will automatically adjust anyways um, as time goes on. And so I would say early in the season, it's a lot more quantitative. Later in the season, it's a lot of this qualitative stuff where you have to be following along, whether it be injuries or rotation changes or just scheme changes late in the year from teams that, you know, well, the season's over. Let's just try this new thing, see how it goes before the season's about to end. Um, season over, meaning, you know, they're not playing for anything anymore outside of just winning each individual game. And so uh, th those are important and it adds up and, and there's some things to be to be found. Another example is Towson had a player a couple weeks ago that got injured that uh, offensively was, um, he's, he's an okay player, he's about average, but defensively the worst Towson lineups against the pick and roll were when he was out of the lineup. Like he was that big of a difference on defense. And so we bet a couple Towson overs that won. And that's something just picked up on, even though the model output for the actual projection of that total would have been different. And I think I bet two of them and they both went over. Luckily they actually cashed, but um, those are just things that, yeah, you're putting more time into that. I think later in the season um, than you are at the beginning. So one, one thing I was going to ask you about, we, you know, switching gears back to the NBA, um, we had this back and forth, and we talked. You talked about this on Twitter. This whole uh, after the All Star break layoff, first quarter unders situation. So basically, what you were saying is that you know the last couple of years that this has happened, the unders were a, a ridiculous number uh, in the first quarter. I think what was it like twenty eight and three or something like that. Um, talk a little bit about that. Uh, how you figure that out, how you attack that, and how I think the bigger thing going into this year was how you didn't or how you knew that the market hadn't adjusted to that or how you knew actually that that just wasn't small sample size. Uh, so I didn't know that it wasn't small sample size. I think it was 24 and 3 for those first two years. So um, like just said, the, the All-Star break, they extended it to eight, nine days for teams two years ago. And I noticed after the first one that the first quarter unders, and I didn't even notice the first quarter unders at first. I was just following the games. I do a lot of live betting. And I noticed they were all starting slow. And then I went back and checked. And first quarter unders were 12 and 1 that first year. So the next year, I just I made a note of it. And the next year, I said, you know, I'm just going to bet them blind for the sake of doing it. And I bet it for way smaller than my normal amount would be. It was like a quarter unit per bet just just to have, maybe have some action and if i was right about you know guys not practicing and playing basketball for eight or nine days in a row and then having to go play and both teams being in the same spot you know maybe there is something to be had where generally first quarters are also in first halves are inflated slightly higher versus the full game totals as they are anyway and so uh we bet them and i just posted it on twitter and they went 12 and 1 last year and there, i think there was a push in there um, and so this year I was like, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. And it doesn't mean the sample isn't you know large. And this year they went six, seven and one. So lost some money if you had actually bet them all. And so it you know, went the other way. There was some weird three point variance that I would say maybe it still is a profitable angle if we're going to get, you know, an inflated first quarter versus full game total number. But uh, it's something I'll just track for fun going forward the next few years. But it wasn't anything that, you know, I would, uh, you know, die for it just because it is still early and um, ultimately betting a first quarter since it's only 12 minutes of you know sport or basketball uh, it's a really high variance bet to make to begin with you know if, if a team starts four for four from three which happened I think five different games uh, that's a huge swing when 
four or five minutes into the game, one team has an extra 12 points right away when generally the expected you know, amount on four threes would be something like five or 4.9 points. So an extra seven points in a couple minutes for a 12 minute bet goes a long way. And so I think uh, it's something that's not, uh, you know, nothing I'll be, I'll be betting massively forever, but something I'll just be tracking uh, for fun. And I, I'm a big NBA fan, as you guys know, anyway. So uh, I've tried to pick up on some of that stuff and see if I can use it to help my uh, profitability. This year wasn't the case. So Preston, when you say that you use game theory, what do you mean by that? All right. Yes, yeah, so I like the, this question. I know Jeff had, had put it on our little outline, and because no one's ever asked it uh, before, and I I looked at like people read my Twitter profile or bio or whatever, and it says I have a master's degree in sports psychology, and everyone jumps to oh, so how do you use sports psychology to help your your betting or whatever? And no one's ever asked about game three, so I was glad he brought it up, and and I'll preface it with this. So. <laughs> um, so I, my background is poker, and I did a lot of studying. Um, I actually took a class at Yale uh, just online that was free, a game theory class, just to try to improve my logic and ultimate like, decision-making in poker hands. And Wait, was it taught uh, by Ben Polak? Uh, yeah, that's who it was. Do you know him, Ben? Ah, I, I took that class as an undergrad. Great oh, you class. did? Oh, I didn't even realize. Yeah, I that did. was it. It was like a... Someone put a camera on the classroom. Can you guys also com- can you compare your grades? I wonder who got better grades than this. My mine was free. I didn't get graded. I actually was just able. There was someone put a camera in the classroom, and every lecture is just listed in order, and you can watch every single lecture. And so that's all that I did. So I didn't get a grade, fortunately. He's my, a good professor. My, a very good professor. I'm making the line on who got a better grade at minus one forty, but I won't tell you who's the favorite. Rufus could tell us because I, I I didn't actually get a grade and he probably knows what what his grade was. <laughs> I got right, but we still can't actually, but we still can't actually resolve that because you could have gotten an A plus. To give that's those true. Out in college, that's true. There's, there's no there's no such thing as an A plus. No, they give those out all the time in college and MIT. I have like I had like fifteen A pluses. Uh, well, I I guess true. I just never got one. You never you never got it. I would I would say maybe no, never got an A plus. Maybe MIT does it to try to differentiate, you know, certain students because it's hard to differentiate them if they're all just getting A's. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely kidding. Like, A, I wouldn't have gotten 17 A pluses, and B, MIT does not give out A pluses. <laughs> That's because you're spending too much time in Vegas. That's yeah, true. well, actually, most of the Vegas stuff happened after MIT. That's the deep, dirty secret. We're like the the narrative that they like to talk about on, with the whole 21 thing is, oh, students by uh-huh. day gamblers by night but the reality is most of the stuff happened after i graduated from college i mean you can't really do this and still be a student at the time right and this was back when you were still a white guy right at least according to the movie <laughs> i was white and i was dating kate bosworth so that was those the reality days. Those, those what, what happened days. that's the real question <laughs> what happened anywho um so back to game theory sure I can just take it. Uh, so I was taking that course, but the reason why I brought it up and I wanted to preface, I guess, my answer is uh, a lot of people don't talk about this, that stuff. And it's a way of thinking and discussion that uh, is hard to understand sometimes the first time for people, even if you're just reading it or hearing it. So I just wanted to preface with uh, I might not be as articulate or clear about the next couple points I'm going to make as I could be. So please follow up, ask me questions on Twitter if you'd like, or listen back a couple times if some of the terms are brand new. Um, and it'll make more sense, I think, if you do that. Um, but there's three three main things that I wanted to 
bring up where I think uh, game theory is applicable in betting. And um, the first and easiest, most basic one for people that don't even really understand what game theory is, is just understanding that it's you know your thought process and trying to you know, make optimal decisions, logical and reasonable decisions that are a sound strategy in some sort of game setting. And if you're able to do that, then you know that long-term you're going to be, you know, in our case, the most profitable. And so it's trying to decipher what those decisions are. And for the first thing, I think bankroll management has a lot to do with just being able to understand how much you should be betting uh, per game, making a decision on what that amount should be and varying it based on what your edge is. And so figuring out what the most profitable like price point is um, or buy point or sell point on a team or this or that, and then making a, a logical or optimal strategy from there. Uh, actually staying true to that is a different story. That's kind of the more psychological side where you go on a really bad run and you know a lot of bettors end up losing more than they should have because they probably were chasing or up to their bet sizing um, or maybe even during a really good run. I, I'm fallen victim to this. It's my favorite example, but you have a, you know, a Saturday where you went like 13 and two, and then the Hawaii games at like 11 p.m. and you're like, ah, eh, with a little heat check here, and you and you fire on the Hawaii game, which ultimately you never would have bet otherwise, and so now you're consciously making a minus EV bet just because you you're on a hot run, and so it's trying to minimize those types of decisions, you know, according to to the bankroll. Um, the second one I, I would say is is game theory is prevalent in in markets like the stock market, but obviously. Uh, here in sports betting, we have markets too. Uh, really good example from, I guess, recent, uh, it was early February as we had the Super Bowl. And I guess just trying to gauge public perception. People always talk about public. Uh, it's, it's a weird word and has kind of this derogatory meaning behind it. But when you're generally just using the word public, you're talking about a lot of other people and trying to gauge what they're going to be doing and how it'll influence the market. And then you need to make your decision accordingly. And so the Super Bowl, really good. Um, there was sort of this, and it's been the case for a few years, there was sort of this like Nash equilibrium. You can look that up if you don't know what it is, but where people that actually know what they're doing know that when you're waiting on a, on a team like the Eagles was getting backed really heavily, just in general, like the spread came down, but the money line came way down. And, you know, most people know if you're going to back the Patriots, um, take your time, wait till the day before or even the day of, and you'll have the best money line price or spread price. Um, more often than not, by by waiting, and uh, everyone kind of knows that, and then they they enter the market at that point. And you know, granted, it didn't pay off for some people that did bet Pat's money line or laid four four and a half. It did save a money laying minus one seventy rather than laying minus two ten or minus two twenty. So it was still like an optimal decision, even though the bet lost um, because they they saved thirty or forty cents or whatever. So um, being able to identify that stuff, and you know, it's not going to be happening. In, in a large scale on like a college basketball slate. But for a big game like the Super Bowl or some other spots throughout the year, um, I think there is something to be said about just the sheer volume that's being put into a game and how you can use that to your benefit. Um, and then the other thing I think is there's like a, a thing in game theory called uh, like common knowledge game. And there's, there's a really cool thing. Uh, I won't be able to get into it here. We don't have time, but look up. Uh, it's a green eyed tribe story about a missionary visiting a tribe and read that and it'll give you a really good idea of, of what common knowledge is ultimately. Um, but I think injury news, especially right now in college basketball, and this goes more into like the qualitative stuff rather than the quantitative stuff, or even steam chasing would fall under this umbrella where, um, you know, the power, I guess, of common knowledge is like you're able to see what's happening and what a crowd's doing and then 
based on an announcement, right, or a signal, I guess would be the like term from game theory you see us or in like the stock market. You have some famous investor that says, hey, I'm really intrigued by this stock and I think it's going to go up, you know, in the next three months and everyone's going to start buying that stock just because he said that and it'll go up. But it's not necessarily because he said that. It could be because people know everyone else heard him too and they know it's going to go up because everyone else is going to be buying it just because they decided it was probably the right thing to do. Um, I'll, I'll use a sports betting example that's better. So let's say, I think Rufus, I haven't followed you forever, but I know if I remember correctly, you were posting college football stuff at one point. And the reason that you don't as much is because it was influencing the market too much. And so we'll say you're famous better X and you released your college uh, football lines, whatever it was, maybe on a Thursday or Wednesday, Friday, whatever it was. And as soon as that would get released, um, what would happen? The market would, would move because one, they trusted your opinion, but it wasn't necessarily because everyone uh, agreed with your opinion, but they were just smart enough to know that everyone else was hearing it too. And that the market was going to go up regardless. And worst case, they could just come back on the other side. Maybe they'd have a nice two or three point middle. Uh, but things were moving because of everyone else's reactions and everyone else's decisions based on everyone else's reactions. Kind of a, I know that they know that he knows thing. And so um, I guess the key to winning that like common knowledge game in ultimately applying it to sports betting is listening to all of the signals or all the variables and information that you're getting. And um, some humans, some not, right? You, you can count the, the model outputs as, as another one. Um, but you need to be able to calculate like the impact of all of those signals and making a, a sound decision accordingly. And you know that's ultimately, I guess, where your decision-making process occurs is being able to calculate all of those things and understanding that other people are going to behave in a certain way and maximizing your ability to, to ultimately get the best numbers when you know you're looking at a market and you're watching screens and, and trying to figure out is this information from Rufus sound and is the market going to react accordingly or is RJ Bell's you know Thursday morning call conference tournament March 1st you know trend going to move the market and have any legs probably not or if it did then you probably know there's going to be some value betting the other way and so just being able to calculate the impact of that information that is you know via Twitter and all social media outlets and and everything I think um, plays a big part to to your edge you know that we talk about edge and where your edge lies uh, a lot of it's that that's numbers like I know I have a, a 4.9 percent edge on this game so I'm gonna bet it um, but I think there's also an edge that comes from someone's ability to uh, like assimilate those informational signals or, or opportunities and then translate it into you know a decision making process or a behavior that's that's profitable and so I guess that's kind of where game three comes into to I guess sports betting. All right, we, we're going to let you get on the road in a second. Um, I did want to close the loop on the conversation I think that you guys were having while I was having incredible technical difficulties. Um, going back to this whole idea of, of couch and selling picks and whatnot, I guess a few questions for you before we end is, is really like, one, if you had to do this all over again, would you have ever sold picks? Two, do you think that your picks over the long haul were profitable, including the amount that your um, clients paid? And three, like, what's your overall impression of the of the tout industry? Um, you know, as you walk away from it. Sure. What was the first part again? Uh, it was about it was about whether you had a chance either. to tout again, whether you would do it. 
Oh, right. Like okay. You, so you could go back to day one, whether you would have done it. Yeah. Well, I think just in general, I guess my life philosophy is like you, you do things and if you regret them, you learn from them. And there's probably a reason that, you know, you, even if you would count them as mistakes that you did those and you need to, to move on. I don't know if I would really redo any, much in my life. So uh, that's kind of my general philosophy there for, for this. I absolutely wouldn't change anything. And then from the actual practical and like financial side, uh, if you know, there's people out there that are smart and uh, I guess I'll, I'll put it this way in short. We had a conversation once about this, I think on, on Twitter, but um, there are people out there that are trying to find younger guys that maybe do sell or post picks somewhere for some sort of subscription service that maybe do have an edge and they're trying to pry them from what they were doing previously. And so uh, if I was never selling, I wouldn't have been contacted by a couple different groups two years ago to actually uh, bet for them and kind of originate my, my picks and selections for them. They were actually doing the betting and that's where a big piece of my income has come from on the last couple of years. So I would say I would definitely do it again because of that. And so because it was on a, a weird stage that gets looked down on a lot from people being on a tout site, um, you know, that's part of, I guess, the trade-off for me was having to do that to get seen by other people that uh, were able to understand. They had bought my picks just to see what my edge was and calculated and decide, hey, this guy actually is pretty good. Let's use him. And so uh, that was almost necessary, I guess, for that. Uh, the second part of the question, now I have forgotten that one, to be honest. Uh, do you remember, Jeff? The second part of the question was, do you think that people have profited, your clients have uh, profited over the time from your Yeah. Business? So one thing I feel good about uh, from this standpoint is that there were multiple times people would DM me and ask if they should buy my package. And the first thing I would ever do is, is ask them how much they're betting a game because there is some sort of, like, ethical, like, barrier there where if someone's paying uh, whatever it is like six or seven hundred bucks for a season package uh if you're betting fifty dollars a game i'm never going to recommend that you're, you're buying my package and i have people that would attest to me telling them not to buy my package so uh, when i was selling the picks so i i'm at least i guess glad that i was able to to do that it wasn't just like yeah man we're gonna for sure win like 30 units you'll be fine you'll cover the cost in the first three weeks um anyone that's actually doing this knows that you can have a down season down month a few weeks uh and ultimately trying to overcome like 14 units or you know x just from uh tout or pick sales that's fine if someone is betting you know five hundred dollars a game a thousand a game uh, maybe even 250 i would say that's fine I, I was i would feel comfortable recommending my my picks to them still um and so then the actual data from from when i sold the first season i ever had that was down was this past season which uh is funny timing and people say oh that's why he left he's not he's not selling anymore which is which is fine people can speculate or oh, i got fired right when was the first time i tout site fired someone for losing picks when they're generating sales but people think maybe i got fired from wager tech that wasn't the case either but i i did have my first losing season we lost it's about three and a half x or three and a half units um and before that i had you know previously in like five years i'd never had a losing season i never really even had a, a slightly winning season it was always um, pretty profitable. So uh, I was humbling to a degree, but I will say, uh, I, I, I can, I genuinely, people would say, oh, you're scamming, you know, you're, you're taking money from people. And I never felt that way. Cause I genuinely was, was winning for people that were putting the time into getting down on my bets and keeping up on it. My volume's pretty high. Um, but this last year, I genuinely did feel bad for the first time because I knew that I wasn't winning for them. And, and that's kind of hard to deal with. 
I guess if you're a pixeller or a tout, uh, and even if you're just writing content and, and giving out you know free picks, or even you guys, you, your podcast, Rufus, and you guys would talk over some plays each week, and it does kind of suck. You know, ultimately, other everyone else is making the decision, but uh, to, to place it that. But if you're if you're losing, it's you do feel bad. And so this was a year that that I did feel bad, and you know, so no matter what anyone was betting size wise or buying my package and then betting my place wasn't profitable this last year, but over the six years um, it was, but there's obviously new people that had just tried me out for the first time this last year and then it didn't uh, work out for them. And so, um, yeah, my answer to that would be that it, it was profitable long-term. If you were able to, to jump in with me for a while, it wasn't profitable in the last, um, I guess, football season, college football season in the short term. So uh, the third part I think just was about my, my attitude towards the space in general and you know, I have to have a pretty good attitude about it because it got me the, I guess, recognition um, and where I'm at now. And I can't, you know, it's kind of similar, I guess, to the first question where I can't um, regret having sold picks because it, it gave me the opportunity to do some other things and obviously make more money betting um, bigger amounts of money than I could ever afford originally being, you know, a student trying to finish my PhD and, um, you know, not having much of an income there. So I, I, yeah, I would say that my overall feeling about the, you know, gambling Twitter in general and the, the space there is most people are logical enough and sound enough to weed out who makes some sense and who doesn't. And if you're able to do that, you know, there's some information that can be gathered and, and used that's going to be actionable and, and profitable in the end. So it can be used for good uh, ultimately. Yeah, I guess I was more asking just your impression of other people in the space that the other towns that you've met, et cetera. Do you think most of them are winners or do you think most of them are scammers? Oh, yeah. So I think when you're having a, a connection, I, one thing I had mentioned, which I'm glad I, I can say this with absolute truthfulness and honesty, but I don't know at all. And other people have probably tracked and posted about what so-and-so is the last year or the last three years. When you're working with the guys, like I'd never know what they're picking. I'm not going out of my way to go to their profile pages and track their last 20. I, I don't know. Every once in a while, I maybe you know I'd see them every other week, and we talk about a game or two. But I have no clue what they're betting most of the time. I'm not really in uh, constant conversation with Marco or Brian or Scott or any of the guys that live here in town. And the one thing I, I wanted to make sure, and I'll, and I'll say again, they've all been so nice and genuine to me. And just the human aspect of being a tout is often like disregarded as them being like this scummy person. They've, they're really good people. And I can say that to, uh, you know, hundred percent belief, at least from, from my experiences with them. And uh, as far as them being winners, I can honestly say, I don't know. So uh, other people out there might have that information have posted it. So you can go uh, look for that and then make your decisions from there. Cool. All right, we'll let you get on the road. Um, enjoy. Wait. This has been great. Sorry, Ruben, did you have something else? Jeff, yeah, I do. Before you go, I want to I want to ask, what do you? What's better, your sports picks or your restaurant picks? Because you've given me some really really good restaurant picks. Um, Chang do taste in Las Vegas, and then when I was in when I was in Porto in Portugal last November, um, I don't even remember what the picks were, but I remember the restaurants I went to as a result of your recommendations were spot on. So. Uh, do you want to share any any other top restaurant picks in, in Vegas or any other any other cities? Uh, sure. So yeah, I'm glad you actually went. I, I was so jealous that you were there for I don't know if it was a week or maybe it was two weeks. Um, but anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you took them and that they they panned out for you there in Portugal. For people that don't know, I lived there for for two years, so I, I can 
speak Portuguese and I am familiar with Porto. That's where I lived the majority of my, my two years there. So if you're ever there, shoot me a message and I will give you some recommendations. As far as Vegas goes, uh, Shane Dute. So I have a really good friend here that is a, uh, I don't get, I, I can't take all the credit. He works for a French caterer or excuse me, a French chef and they do catering for actual like hotels, but he has the ends with a lot of the restaurants and the chefs at the other restaurants. And so he has a lot of good recommendations. And he actually told me about Chengdu Taste. It's a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown that's that's really good. It's like classic, authentic Szechuan Chinese food. If you've ever had it, it's really spicy, um, but it, it was good. But I, I would say uh, whenever anyone asks, and you know, people can always shoot me a message now uh, via Twitter, but it's very dependent for me. This is just, I guess, how I live as, as a fat kid. Uh, but that day, like, what do I feel like? So it's hard for me to make recommendations on the spot because if I feel like Mexican that day, then right now I've been on this Javier's kick. Yeah, there's one at Newport Beach and there's one at Aria. And if you go there, I think they have the best like seafood Mexican kind of fusion and the best chips and salsa in the entire city. Uh, if you feel like Greek, uh, Cosmo, I like like love Milos. I know Jeff likes Milos a lot too. Oh, God, they have the yeah. best. They have the best lunch deal, I think, uh, period, in, in the entire town. You know, if you feel like uh, a French restaurant, then there's a few of those that I could recommend. So it, it, for me, it always depends on just, I guess, what food I feel like that day. All right. Well, thanks for the time. I think we'll probably have you on again soon because March Madness is coming up, and there was a lot of questions we didn't even cover um, in this time. But, again, thanks for the sure. time, and uh, make sure everyone follows you. What's your Twitter handle? Oh, yeah, at, at Sports Cheetah. Okay, everyone follow him because he's a great follow on, on Twitter. So Appreciate you guys having me on. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, Preston. So I know we had some technical difficulties there during that segment with, with Jeff's mic and everything. And I know, Jeff, I don't think you necessarily um, – I know you went back and listened to what what uh, Preston said in, in, I guess, my initial conver- part of the conversation about working for Wager Talk and sort of the um, moral quandary of of having a stake in a company that Wager Talk, which is blatantly well, as I mean, he said it himself. They're not very they they do not they they want to make it hard for people to look up the records of the touts. So, so I guess what what is your opinion on that, Jeff? I know you didn't get to weigh in during the actual conversation, so I know you have some strong opinions there. Yeah, I mean, I think. This is the challenge, right? Like, and even just, I think you and I even talked about having Preston on the podcast, um, him being, you know, or having been a tout. Um, I think both of us have a ton of respect for him. And obviously those of you guys who listen to that segment, you could tell how much he really does know about this and how valuable his content and his process is. Um, that being said, I mean, I do think that there is some responsibility um, that we have as, you know, quote unquote, sports experts or analytics experts to, you know, that's why we, one of the reasons we started this podcast was we didn't want to ever cast a blind eye to any of this stuff. Um, I do think Preston has like loyalty to the wager talk guys from the beginning. And I don't think he is the type of person like us that is going to get caught up in the sort of minutiae of like what people are doing wrong and whatnot. Um, I know, I know that your issue is really this kind of concept that he said of like, Oh, all these guys are good dudes. And I mean, this is similarly similar to the argument that I've gotten to with Gil Gil. um, about his podcast and and everything like this. It's it's the same thing. It's like, it's hard for me to associate with people publicly in this professional life 
um, that are supporting this industry that is clearly misleading and um, clearly doing things to make it hard to have full transparency. That's why, I mean, everyone challenges us on our work with Sports Action. And, you know, I know that their goal is to try to make this as transparent as possible. And again, like we fought, I fought with Brian Tooth and Nail from the beginning about whether he should sell picks, telling him that there's just no way to do it and provide value. So when you go back to sort of like what what Preston was saying, um, I think he's just basically saying he's kind of above dealing with all this. And he just kind of looks at these people's people and he doesn't. You know, like even just the question I asked him about the tout industry in general at the end, you know, he took very much the high road on it, which is like it's kind of like buyer beware. Everyone should figure it out themselves. You can see who's a clown and who's not a clown. But I think what he's wrong about is that like there's there's people that can't see clowns and there's people that get into this and get so twisted in terms of being addicted to gambling and wanting to win that they'll chase any dream that they believe can help them win. And that's like, you know, you're really like preying on this, this sort of like weakness of, of the human, the human psyche in some respects. Yeah. I mean, if his argument is that people are rational, I mean, the, the fact that a site like wager talk can exist and presumably have people sign up for it is a counter argument right there alone, because, you know, Marco D'Angelo is not a winning sports better. Um, and I, I would venture to guess most of these people that are hiding their long-term records are also not winning sports betters. Yeah. I mean, I think again, this is, he's not going to have that argument with you. Right. And he's not even going to be the right no, person to have that argument with. Well, um, because like, we just have to decide I mean, he has like, from, he, has, he has equity yeah. in the company. And so of course he, I mean, so I don't think it's very fair of us to say, to say like, Hey, I want you to like talk shit about these people that, you know, that actually gave you a platform when you didn't have one before. Right. I think that it's, I mean, in a way, Preston was in the same position I was in when I moved out working for LVSC where I had no bankroll. I was, you know, betting a few hundred bucks at a time, trying to slowly build a bankroll with my models, which like, and it's, you know, you have to have money to make money. And I got lucky that I met the right people who were willing to take a chance. I mean, I wasn't selling picks. Instead, I was, uh, I was having people that were betting my picks. And I know Preston's had the same thing happen and, and it took off from there. And so I think when you're in that position, you're, it's, it's like you, he got a break, right? And at the time, you know, he's not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to take this break because of this precedent it sets. And because, uh, you know, the, you know, these people might be um, scamming other people or whatever. He probably didn't even think about that. Right. At the time. No, but that was, that was one of the reasons that I want to have him on and be able to explain himself um, in terms of like his thinking, because again, like when I, when I heard it for the first time, like how he got involved in this, I was not like, Oh my God, this guy is delusional, blah, blah, blah. This guy's just very realistic. He, you know, he didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't know a ton about the industry, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden he got put into this this world and like when he had a chance to sort of get out he got out so like i think that the you know you and i are next up if for feeling like really comfortable like working with him which we're not so it's not our place to say anything but would be if he were to just get rid of his like stake and wager talk and be done with it for right. sure 100 so that, that's like the one that's like the one issue that you still personally have with it so you know but I, again like he's he is he's very impressive I think in how he looks at the game. And I thought that the discussion that we had um, around sports betting and around how he uses like psychology and even uses qualitative stuff. I mean, that was probably the best discussion. 
discussion that we've had around qualitative factors. I think you and I, whenever we argue about it, we always end up sort of stumbling back to the, well, you should put it in your model thing. Um, and he had some great examples. And, and I know these examples he was talking about were absolutely true because I was, when they were happening, he was texting me about them. He was saying like, hey, do this, do that. This is what's happening. This is new. Um, and he and I actually, what's funny is like we had been exchanging NBA picks um, started like about, you know, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. And literally the first. Sounds like the saddest people, thing ever, by the way. What? NBA betting. Sorry. <laughs> no, but like literally for like 19, the first 19 picks in NBA, we were, were like 100%. We're like 19 and 0. And we finally lost on like a, a Warriors second half where we bet against the Warriors, which was just, which was just tough. But like, you know, like we, the funnier thing was like at the same time we were exchanging some college picks and they were probably like, Oh, and 19 or something like that. They weren't quite that bad. I mean, it was still net positive, but it was, it was, uh, it was funny because the NBA couldn't lose and the and college couldn't win, um, which just goes, goes back to the though, point. Right? Yeah, well, small sample size. We all see, mm-hmm. we all look for patterns and data that don't really exist based on short-term sample size. It's, it's human nature. Even math nerds like us fall for it sometimes. Maybe you don't, but I do for sure. So oh, I do. I think we all do. We're human. All right. We're only human. I, yes. I think that's a good conclusion. So this is our second ever Bet the Process off-season podcast. So we'll see how this goes. This one's kind of a mess. So our editor, Mike, will hopefully have to do a really great job putting this together. But we've appreciated the comments on Twitter, which we've ignored up till now, because basically most of them said, please provide more structure around your podcast in the off-season. Um, hopefully we'll do that next week. I'm not really ignoring you. We just had a bunch of things this week that we're trying to get in and we're trying to play around with a bunch of things. Um, You know, pardon the dust from the construction as we continue to try to make this better and better. So thanks for the time this week. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks.